0: Most everyone in here can probably think of of someone uh, th- that 's dear to them uh, that they won 't get to celebrate Christmas with this year because you 've lost that person okay so I, I think most readily the the, the joy that that's, um that we have in in uh, our savior 's birth, I think at Christmas time and at, at holiday times where family gathers together that 's where that joy butts up against our sorrow and and sometimes I think as a as People of God, we, we've forgotten how to lament and see that that's a biblical thing. And to see that's a good thing. That it doesn't mean when I'm sad that I'm not believing the gospel. It doesn't mean that when I'm sorrowful um, that I hate God. It means that I long for everything that's been broken and damaged by sin to be made right. And it casts my mind toward the one who came to, to make it right. Amen? And so this morning, I actually want to pray a lament with us. And, and I, um, I'm not good at it either, so I'm just going to use our, our scripture passage for it this morning. As a prayer of lament, Psalm 88 is actually one of the few psalms that doesn't end on a happy note. Um, and yet... In a way, it actually begins with one, and we'll see this because the, 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 um, the psalmist begins with, Lord, God of my salvation. They begin with, with the good news, the, with, with, the, with the, the hope that they have, and yet then they express, because God is the God of my salvation, I can come to him and I can express my sorrow and my pain and, and cast these things to him because, what uh, Peter says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you right? And so as we pray this morning, it's not going to be chipper. That's okay. Because we have grief, we have sadness, we have loss in this world because the world is broken because of sin. And Christ has come to redeem all of that. He is our Redeemer. And so we come to Him in prayer, confessing these things of how we feel and knowing that that's okay. He understands. He sympathizes in our weakness. Amen? So let's pray together, and I'm I'm just going to read this psalm as a prayer. Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. May my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry, for I I have had enough troubles, and my life is near Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. I'm like the slain lying in the grave, whom you no longer remember and who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest part of the pit, in the darkest places, in the depths. Your wrath weighs heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have distanced my friends from me. You have made me repulsive to them. I am shut in and cannot go out. My eyes are worn out from crying. Lord, I cry out to you all day long. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Will your faithful love be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be known in the darkness? or your righteousness in the land of oblivion. But I call to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer meets you. Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? From my youth, I have been suffering and near death. I suffer your horrors. I am desperate. Your wrath sweeps over me. Your terrors destroy me. They surround me like water, All day long, and they close in on me from every side. You have distanced loved one and neighbor from me. Darkness is my only friend. Lord, we... I feel uncomfortable coming to you in that way. I feel like I need always... To be joyful, and and feel the need to uh, minimize the pain and the sorrow that life brings. In comparison to the joy and the life that you bring, and Lord, that is true. There is nothing that compares. Uh, Paul calls it the 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 light and momentary troubles. And yet the reality is uh, they're light and momentary for you, but they're heavy and burdensome for us. And so we need help from the God who is our salvation. We need help. Lord, some people in this room need help to just make it through Christmas. To be around other people and, and... Try not to to spoil their joy. And yet, Lord, you comfort the brokenhearted. You bring peace to those who are in turmoil. You give strength to the weary. You rescue us from darkness, even when we feel like it is our only friend. And so we pray that the light of Christ would shine both in warmth and in truth in our lives. And that we wouldn't cast you out in despair, but we would come to you in despair. That we would lament the losses that we have and know that's okay. That we would trust and hope in a God who sees all, who knows all who came to be like us, made in the weakness of the flesh and yet was without sin, who sympathizes with our weakness and gives us his strength. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for for uncomfortable passages like Psalm 88. And we thank you that you're a God who hears us in our most raw state and you love us and you draw us to yourself. Bring comfort this, this year, this, these next few weeks. Bring peace, but let, let those who need to grieve, grieve and to do so knowing that you embrace them in that. We love you and we praise this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are continuing in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to finish up chapter 3 this morning, looking at verses 20 through 35. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we do have some on the welcome table back there. If you do have a Bible from the welcome table, we're going to be on page 889 this morning. And in this passage, so um, w- one of the things, uh, uh, when we're reading through a-, a book of the Bible, okay, um, is that the author um, has not only themes and and intentions that he's trying to communicate, but he actually uses some literary uh, devices to communicate those things, ways to communicate truths. And this morning, we're going to see a a literary device that that Mark uses um, nine different times in this gospel. This is the first one. Now, a literary device is just a, a structure of writing, Uh, That an author uses to help recognize, to help the reader recognize the intended message that the author has to say in in a simple way, so that you can kind of see the structure and go, "Okay, this is what this is what he says. This is what he wants us to know." And so, um, the the device that is used here, and now Mark is not calling it this, but this is this is the name for it for for our sake. Okay, it's a sandwich. Okay. Um, Now, if you think about a basic sandwich, it's got two pieces of bread, and then there's meat in the middle, right? Um, And so it's the same concept here. He's going to take two stories, and he's going to start one, first piece of bread, and then he's going to insert the second story in there as the meat, and then he's going to come back and finish the first story uh, as the the last piece of bread, and he does that... um, in doing that, he combines two stories that necessarily don't relate to each other, but because they're sandwiched together, he uses that second story to bring out the full meaning of both. And so that, that's what we're going um, to see this morning in that. And so I'm going to read the passage, and as I read it, I want you to just kind of listen to see where, where you think the bread is and where you think uh, the meat is, and then we'll get into the message, okay? So Mark 3, 20 through 35. Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. And so he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. And then he can plunder his house. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here, are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Lord, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful that you use it to enlighten us, to convict us, and that you work it in our hearts through your spirit to draw us to you in hope to reveal our need for you, and so we pray that you would use it for that purpose this morning, that those who sit in here as enemies would leave here as family, and that those who sit in here as family would leave here uh, with greater obedience to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, So today is the uh, Bears-Packers game. And just out of curiosity, how many of you are Bears fans? Oh, this will be interesting. I do see a Packers shirt here. You had to sit right in front, too. How many of you are are, are Packers fans? Oh, and how, how many of you don't like football? Did you guys do that on purpose? Like It's like all the football fans over here and then all the people that just don't care about anything, really, I think, because... <laughs> I love all of you guys. Um, so it's funny because um, I know a family who, who the, the wife is a Packers fan and the husband is a Bears fan. Some of you that have come from Crosspoint know these people. Um, and somehow it works in their family. I don't understand. I can't explain it other than the fact that they both know and love Jesus. That's it. And that's the only thing that's keeping them together. Um, but it's funny though, right? Like, like... I, we, we, especially Bears and Packers fans, we, we, we sort of take on the identity of the team, right? We get super excited about the game. It's the oldest rivalry in the NFL, and and so we start to talk to each other like, man, we're going to crush you guys today. Like, I'm going to suit up, and you're going to suit up, and we're going to go out and play on the team, right? We take the identity of of the team, and we start to, we start to, um, to razz each other about that, um, we're divided then based on what team we identify with, what, how we, uh, how we associate with that team. Here's the thing, though: we do the same thing with Jesus, okay? And and we might not want to admit that, but that is that that's what we do. We we all have sort of these these identifiers that we put Jesus in, and we say my Jesus or your Jesus, right? And we say, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. Or your Jesus, I can't believe he would do that. And we, we, we divide over those things. But we're going to see today in our passage that Jesus is the one who gives us our identity. And it, that is necessarily then going to create both unity and division. Jesus is the one. He's the one that gets to tell us who we are. And by definition of that, by by, the, by who he is, that's going to create division and unity. And so, as we go through this, um, we're going we're gonna to see that. So, here we go. Okay, Mark three, twenty, and 21. Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. Okay, so once again, we're back in the setting uh, of a house. Now, the only house that's been mentioned in Mark, specifically, is the house of Peter and Andrew in, uh, in Capernaum, north of the Sea of Galilee there. So it's probable that this is the house. It's, this is kind of the, the area that Jesus has set up to do his ministry around Galilee, uh, Galilee. Either way, they're in a house. A house is a family setting, right? Um, and so we want to keep that visual in our mind as we go through this passage. And then, once again, there's a crowd gathered at the house, right? We've seen this now uh, multiple times throughout the, the gospel. What is the crowd in Mark's gospel? It's an obstacle. Always an obstacle. They're always keeping Jesus from something. What are they keeping Jesus from, from doing here and his disciples? From, from eating, right? They're filling the house and they, they don't have anything to eat. So his family's like, it's probably his mom, right? Because mom's like, you're looking a little thin, sweetie. You need to, you know. Have you had anything to eat today? The family's like, this is ridiculous. He's out of his mind. They say you have to eat. You have to nourish yourself. You can't keep going on like this. We have to do something about it. They say, and so they're going to come down and they're going to they're going to they're going to fix the problem, right? Um. What What's interesting is that this in in English it says that he's out of his mind. The Greek for this is actually um a. a Quite a bit more expressive. Um, It literally says, they went to seize him, believing that Jesus had gone berserk. They think he's loony. They can't fathom the fact, like, what is this guy doing? Why is he not feeding himself? Um, And then the Greek word for uh, restrain, When it says they they go to restrain him here in, in the CSB, um, it might say "seize" in your Bible. That word, Mark uses in his gospel 15 times. Three times he uses it um, to to talk about Jesus taking hold of someone's hand and helping them up and healing them of some disease or or something like that. Three times it's it's. Um, Pointing to Jesus doing that, all the other times it's someone else. It's depicting someone else coming to Jesus and trying to restrain him, to take hold of him, to keep him from doing something, to keep him from his mission. Now, what do you think Mark means by restrain here? Is Jesus grabbing hold of anybody's hand? No, right. His family's coming to restrain him. This is his family. They they love him, and yet they're coming. Mark is letting us in here on a clue. They are coming to actually pre, uh, prohibit him from carrying out his mission here. And so um, that's an important part of, of the, the passage this morning. This is the, the, the bread. This is the first piece of bread, these two, these two verses. Okay? Now we're going to move on to the meat. So we're going to look at verse 22 through 26. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished." In verse 22, Mark notes that the scribes had come down from Jerusalem. Anytime you see people leaving Jerusalem in in the Bible, they're going down, regardless of whatever direction they're they're going. And that's because Jerusalem sits up on a hill. And so um, it's also Jerusalem is, is the seat of the temple where the temple is. And so um, it's a very important city. It's the most important city for the Jews because where the temple is, that's where God's presence is. So everything happens at, in, in Jerusalem as the center. So they speak about the other places um, in, with Jerusalem in, in view in terms of where Jerusalem is. So they go down from Jerusalem to Capernaum, even though Capernaum is north of Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Okay, um, but the fact, that, the fact that, that Mark says that the scribes came from Jerusalem is very important here because, again, Jerusalem is where the temple is. It represents the official authority of the religious leaders. And so um, what you have here is you have an official opposition of the religious leaders to Jesus. It's not just scribes uh, from the local synagogues that we've seen earlier in, in Mark. We are now seeing this official opposition taking place from The leadership coming from Jerusalem. And so uh, in verse 21, Jesus' family makes this accusation about him. They say that he's out of his mind, right? That he's gone uh, uh, berserk. And now the scribes make an accusation about Jesus as well, but theirs is much more vicious. They say, they actually say that he is evil. And by now, there's there's this overwhelming evidence that Jesus' miracles are authentic. He's healed so many sick people, he's cast out so many demons. That the scribes can't deny that the evidence uh, of these things to be true. And so they can't actually accuse him of being a fraud. No one would believe them, right? And so instead, they accuse him for, for, for being on the wrong side. They, they claim that his power to heal and to cast out demons comes from Beelzebul instead of from God. Now, the name Beelzebul comes from a Hebrew uh, term that refers to an exalted prince. In his dwelling place in the Old Testament, um, the false god Baal was seen as the ruler of the demonic world, and the word Beelzebul um, would be like Baal Zebul, which is um, Baal, the ruler of the house. And so, when Jesus descri- or when the scribes say that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, they're, they're suggesting that he's under the control of the ruler of demons. When they say that he drives out. Demons by the ruler of demons, they're crediting the source of his power to the devil instead of to God. And even though the message and works of Jesus are clearly good, the scribes are either unable or unwilling to see that. And they accuse Jesus then of doing evil, of being evil. They reduce Jesus to being this sorcerer instead of the Messiah and the Son of God. They're just flat out denying that. Now, according to Jewish law, anyone that's caught doing magic in the the realm of Satan in Satan's power um, was to be stoned to death. So it's it's actually possible then that this accusation is a calculated accusation by the religious leaders since we know that from the time Jesus healed the, the man with the withered hand in the synagogue, they've been plotting to kill him, right? They can't defraud him, so they need to find a new way to get him to die. This is one of those ways. Um, and understanding this, Jesus responds to their accusations by speaking to them in parables. We're starting to see more of these parables in Mark's gospel. A parable, remember, is a short story that draws from everyday uh, situations and occurrences, things that are used in everyday life to communicate a particular truth. So they know about Beelzebul, so Jesus uses Beelzebub, and he links that then to Satan in verse 23. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? And the imagery that he uses in, in these verses, they play on the meaning of the name Beelzebul as the prince of the house, as the ruler of the house. He says, a kingdom divided cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln didn't come up with that phrase. Jesus did, right? He uses logic, though, that we can all understand. Let's just say that we're, we're in here, um, not for church service, but we're in here to watch a, a Fieldcrest Boys basketball game. And we're watching the game and, and, and tip off, and we win the tip off, and the first thing that one of our players does is gets the ball and he dribbles to the t- other team's basket and he s- scores points for them. And you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe he just doesn't know where he's at. Well, then the next time he does it, he goes to their basket and he scores again. And you're like, why isn't the coach taking this guy out? He's berserk, right? If the team plays against itself, it's not going to win, Right? This is the logic. Anything that works against itself destroys itself. This is the logic that Jesus is, is using. And so the, the, if Satan's players, so to speak, play against Satan, he's finished. He's done. His kingdom can't last. His house won't stay in order, right? Right? So the scribes' accusation against Jesus, for us as readers of this, it's illogical. It's, it's absurd. They're out of their minds if they think that, right? The evidence is super clear of what Jesus has done. He's good. They did get one thing right, though. Jesus is against Satan, and he reveals that in verse 27. Look at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. In the parable, Satan is the strong man that Jesus is talking about. And again, it's a play on the name Beelzebul. No one can plunder the house of the ruler unless he first overpowers the ruler of the house. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. In previous weeks, we've talked about how Mark portrays Jesus as the suffering servant who is the Son of God. Uh, The suffering servant is described in Isaiah 53. But suffering is only part of what Isaiah described for the servant of the Lord. Listen to Isaiah 49, verses 24 through 26. It says, Can the prey be taken from a mighty man, or the captives of a tyrant be delivered? For this is what the Lord says. Even captives of a mighty man will be taken, and the prey of a tyrant will be delivered. I will contend with the one who contends with you. I will save your children." I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they will be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. Then all people will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. That is strong language, right? The servant of the Lord is not only going to suffer, but in his suffering he's going to conquer. 1 John 3, 8 says the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says that God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We know that he is our redeemer, our savior, the mighty one, Jacob, right? In Mark chapter one, John the Baptist talks about Jesus In this way, he says that he is the one more powerful who has come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus has just revealed himself in verse 27 here to be the one powerful enough to bind the strong man, Satan, and plunder his house. And we saw earlier in Mark that Jesus went out into the wilderness and he defeated Satan in the power of the Holy Spirit. He resisted all of the temptations that Satan put before him, and now he's plundering Satan's house. He bound Satan up. Satan is no longer the the one in charge, and he's plundering Satan's house by casting out demons and rescuing people. This is the progression we see in, in Mark's gospel, rescuing people from their sin through repentance and belief. All of Jesus's work is done through the power of the Holy Spirit, but the scribes don't. They don't think so. They say that he has um, an unclean spirit and that that's the driving force behind his, behind his work. And so then Jesus turns to them and he has, as the, the, the ruler, as the true ruler, he has strong words for them. Look at verse 28. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, these verses describe what's known as the unforgivable sin. Again, depending on what uh, tradition or religion you grew up in, you might have different answers for this, but Jesus makes it very clear here. What is the unforgivable sin? Specifically, it is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy is slander of God. It's it's a defamation of his reputation and character. Jesus' family actually does that in verse 21 when they say he's berserk. They're calling him crazy. That's a defamation of his character, right? But even that one is forgivable. Jesus says, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter uh, against me, against the Son of Man. In one of the other gospels, it, it, they add that in there. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiven uh, forgiveness. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to equate the holy work of God with the wicked work of the devil. It's to equate the work of the Holy Spirit with the work of the evil one. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit are so hard-hearted that they equate good with evil. They equate light with darkness. They equate bitter with sweet. They cannot, they will not distinguish between these things and they equate God's character with that of the devil. It's the unforgivable sin, not because God is unwilling to forgive them that commit it, but because they are unwilling to repent of it. They're so hard hearted when you refuse to distinguish good from evil. You see no need to seek forgiveness from the good God who you have sinned against. It's unforgivable not because God is unwilling to forgive those who commit it, but because they are unwilling to repent of it. So now you're sitting there in your seat and you're like, did I do it? Um, If you're scared of that, no, you, you haven't done it. Chances are pretty good because you're able to discern. You're able to, to understand good and evil. You're able to, to separate darkness and light, bitter and sweet, right? It's evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. Even if you haven't uh, trusted fully in Jesus yet, the fact that you're, you're contemplating these things, that's evidence of God doing something in your life to draw you to himself. And so anyone that's worried about having committed this, this unforgivable sin, fear not fear not, okay? The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sin, to bring light to our understanding of our need to be forgiven, and to draw us into the sweetness of forgiveness by giving us a new heart that's able to receive God's grace through Jesus Christ. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is not simply to deny our need for repentance, it's to deny the very one who does the effectual work of repentance in our hearts, So Mark isn't simply condemning the scribes for their blasphemy here. He's warning his readers to guard against the same error in their own hearts. And so that's where it's good news. It's a good reminder for us. Yes, we're warned by this, but if we're worried about it, we can see that as evidence of God's continual work in our life, and we can lean into that. No one who fears sinning against God should be concerned that God won't forgive them. That is a defamation of his character. He is a God who forgives. There's not one instant in, instance in Scripture of anyone who has come to God seeking forgiveness and does not receive it. In fact, Jesus promises that that will never happen. John 6, 37, Jesus says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. If you come to him in true repentance, he will never deny it to you because he is good because he's not evil, and he came to cast out evil from the lives of all God's people. But you have to come, and you have to repent. and You have to believe. This is story B here, this interaction with the scribes. This is the meat of the the sandwich, and and it's going to show us the meaning of both stories, but in order to get the full sandwich, we have to go back to the original story. And that's where we pick up in verse 31. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and they called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my, mother, is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus' family shows up to the house, and they can't get in because of the crowd, right? The crowd's an obstacle again. And so then they send word to Jesus, but when it says they called him in verse 31, in the Greek, it, it has this feel of this authoritative summons, like, like they were demanding him to come out to them. They're mad because they think he's crazy, and they show up and they're like, we're ending this. You need to come here now. I'm sure as a parent, you've never said anything like that to your child. Verse 32, when the crowd tells Jesus that his family's asking for him, again, in the original language, it gives this idea that Jesus' family is making a claim on him. It's like they're shouting over the crowd, like, this: He's ours. Get out of the way. Bring him out here. He's ours. It literally means that they desired to have him. And then something interesting happens in the final three verses in the passage. Jesus poses this question. Who are my mother and my brothers? And then his family and the crowd switch places. Not physically, but they switch places relationally. Suddenly, it's Jesus' family that's now the obstacle. And Jesus calls the crowd his family. His blood family tries to take him away from his mission in that moment by claiming their right to his identity. But he looks at those sitting in the circle around him and he says, anyone that does the will of God, anyone that that is obedient to the Father has the right to be called my brother and my sister and my mother. Anyone who aligns themselves with me and my mission is given a new identity and is united to me. Jesus is not disowning his biological family here but he is establishing a precedence that prioritizes his spiritual family over his own flesh and blood. And so here's the main point of all of this. This is the bite out of the sandwich that we need to chew on right here, okay? Jesus' true family are all those who recognize the Holy Spirit's good work and submit to the will of God. As the true master of the house, Jesus is the one who gets to say who's in and who's out. He's the one who gets to say who is his family and who is not. And he said, it's not made up of those who attempt to force their will upon him. It's not made up of those who do evil. It's made up of those who take his will upon themselves through faith and obedience in the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's what this does to the gospel. It makes the gospel both inviting, both uh, uniting and dividing. The gospel is the good news that God forgives and saves rebellious sinners and welcomes them into his kingdom, adopts them into his kingdom through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And we are forgiven and saved and adopted when we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus. The nature of this news is that it's good news. It's in the very word gospel, means good news. It's not evil news. But this news speaks of good and evil. This news speaks of righteousness and wickedness, and it divides those who hear it. It's only good news if you come to the conclusion that you are the one that's the rebellious sinner, Who separated yourself, who's divided yourself from a good and holy God through your sin. And you see the work of Jesus as good work from a good God who has come to work on your behalf, that he came, that he lived the perfect life that you should have lived that didn't, and and you didn't, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, the death that you should have died but didn't, and that he rose from the grave to open the way to life forever for you in God's kingdom as his child. It's only good news if you believe that and you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus. You can't force your will upon God. You must come to him and submit to his. Anyone who believes the good news of the gospel and obeys God's will is united to Christ forever as a brother and a sister. Anyone who refuses to believe the good news of the gospel and disobeys God's will is divided from his kingdom forever. It's not good news that the king is coming to execute his justice and wrath on all of his enemies if you still live in rebellion to him. That makes you his enemy. You don't escape that. The good news... We sang about it. Oh God, you made a way. You made a way. God has provided a way not only to rescue you from yourself, not only to rescue you from the evil one, not only to rescue you from his coming judgment, but to actually make you a member of his family, and that way is through his son, Jesus Christ, and no other way. So this morning, you've heard the word. You've heard the gospel. And some of you are sitting there and you're still living in rebellion against this. This is the dividing line. You either hear it and obey it or you don't. But you don't get to choose the consequences. God has set those. And I love you. And I want you to know the freedom that you can have in Christ. That you can actually be made new, and you can be brought into his kingdom as his son or daughter. This is good news. For those of us that have done that, that have turned from our sin, and that's what you need to do this morning. If you're faced with this, the reality that you are still separated from God, you turn from your sin. You say, I don't love that anymore. My affections belong to the Lord you trust Him, and you follow Him, and you, you continue to seek Him, knowing that He's giving you His Spirit to help you obey Him, because you can't do it. I can't do it. But for those of us who have received God's grace through His Spirit and the finished work of His Son, those of us who have repented, have turned from our sin, and continue to trust in Jesus... And continue to turn from our sin. We've been united to God in Christ. We've been united to one another as the family of God. So, so how do we take this then, what Jesus says? We, we've, we know that. We, we understand what Jesus has said here who's family and who's not. And we've come to Him as family now through faith and repentance. So how do we take this then and live this out in our day-to-day lives? Here's, here's a few ways. First, we need to continually seek to do God's will. If those who do God's will are part of God's family, then that means that those who are family will continue to do God's will, right? It's not, it's not easy because we're prone to want to come back to do our own thing But we need to remember that he's adopted us into his family through the finished work of his son. That means that we obey him as children of his kingdom, not as captives of it. And so our ongoing obedience is not a penance that we pay. It's a freedom that we're given. That we receive. So how do we obey God's will? By obeying his word. His will and his word are the same thing. We seek His will continually by seeking His word continually. So are you pursuing God uh, through His word more than just here on a Sunday morning? Is this a day-to-day part of your life? I need it. I need it more than I need the New Morning Mercies devotional. But that helps me get back into God's word. I need it because I'm prone to wander. I need it because I'm prone to exerting my will upon Jesus instead of Remaining humbly submitted to his. Here's what his word tells us to do. He tells us to share his word with others. But we have to understand that his word divides and it's meant to do so. One author put it this way. He says, this is the dividing line that runs through all history and humanity. God's people listen to God's word. No one else does. Every human belongs in one category or the other. There's no third category. When someone hears God's word, they either accept it or reject it. That's it. You either, re- you either re- accept it or reject it. And so when we share God's word with others, we need to be careful not to water it down in an, in an attempt to be more inclusive. Yes, we need to, to, to relate to that person and understand that they're just like us. We need to understand that we're just like them. Apart from Christ, we are doomed. Apart from Christ, we are on the, the, the way to judgment. But it's God's grace that's rescued us, and so we come to them in grace. It may seem loving to soften the blow, but it's not, it's not. How can it be loving to let someone think that they're okay with God when they aren't? How can it be loving when you have the news of hope to keep your mouth shut or to only tell part of it If they're not okay with God, they are divided from him as his enemy. You at one point were not okay with God. You were divided from him as his enemy and still condemned to an eternity apart from him. Listen, God has sovereignly placed you in that person's life so that you use the words of his word to share the hope that you have found in Christ, to bring the good news of the gospel, tidings of comfort and joy. so that they might turn from their sins and trust in Jesus and be made right with God. So we've got to be clear with people what's at stake and share the fullness of God's word with them. But here's the flip side, okay? It's also unloving to wield God's word like a sword and just start coming in and hacking and slashing at people, beating them up over the head with it. We don't have to be, we shouldn't be divisive people. God's word divides. We can let it do that. Colossians 4 tells us to act wisely toward outsiders and make the most of the time that we have with them. It tells us that our speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how we should answer each person. 1 Peter 3 tells us to always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that is within us, but to do so with gentleness and respect. We share the truth with people because we love them and we care about their souls. Do they know that when they hear you speak? We share the truth with them in the hopes that we can be united with them in Christ. God's word is a sword against our spiritual enemy, but it's a scalpel that does heart surgery on our neighbor, on our friend, on our family member. And as, as brothers and sisters in Christ who've undergone that spiritual heart surgery, we are united to one another in the household of God, and we need to be eager to maintain the unity in the spirit through the bond of peace. We do that in two ways. First, we keep the gospel as the main thing that unites us over everything else. There are Bears and Packers fans in here. There's Republicans and Democrats. There's rich people and poor people. There's a lot of differences between us. There's theological differences. Some are important. We need to work those out. Some we just need to be charitable in. We can disagree on a lot of things, but we cannot and we should not disagree on Jesus. He is the one that unites us together. The gospel keeps us centered on Christ so that as we disagree on those other things, we don't take it personally. We, we, we come to each other in disagreement with the understanding that we are united together as brother and sister in the Lord. And our common dependence upon Christ guides us then to work through those disagreements in a gospel-centered way that actually brings greater unity, even if we don't come to an agreement on the thing, rather than deepening our division. And the second way that we maintain that unity is is by dividing our new self from our old self in increasing measure. This is what it means to, to be an ongoing obedience to God's will. Every believer is a new creation in Christ. Right? Paul tells us that the old is gone, the new has come. We're, we're, we're not yet perfected, though. We like to run back to our old ways, and so we need to separate ourselves from our old ways as much as possible. That may mean uh, that we need to avoid certain situations or places or, or, or people that would tempt us to return to uh, the old sin in our lives. It definitely means that we don't isolate ourselves from the family of God. In Christ, your new self is not just for you. You are part of a body. Christ is the head. He has form-fitted you to other people so that you can function for him. We've been recreated together in him. We need each other. I need you. You need me. Not because we're something special, but because Jesus has made us for each other. And so we read and we study and we share God's word together with one another here on Sunday mornings throughout the week. Let's talk about more than just bears and packers. That's how we help each other connect the realities of the gospel with the realities of our lives. As I was preparing this message, I felt like I was, I almost literally had like the same point as last week. And I'm sitting here, I'm going, I don't have anything new. But that is the point, right? There has to be unity in in the message of the gospel. It doesn't change. It's not different week to week. The response to it is the same every time. Jesus is the one who dictates our lives. He's not a dictator, He's a Savior, He's the Lord, He's a Redeemer. He is the mighty one, the master of the house, because this is the reality. Someday, he's coming back, and a final division will take place. The the, the chief shepherd will come, and he'll separate the sheep from the goats, believers from unbelievers, family from foe. And in that moment, his true disciples will be revealed and they will enter his kingdom and receive their inheritance as God's children. But those who have rejected the work of his Holy Spirit and continued in rebellion and disobedience against God, those who never truly knew Jesus, even though they may have claimed him as their own, those people will be eternally separated from him and they will bear the full weight of God's wrath against their sin forever, forever 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 without end I don't want that to be you this morning I I, I hope you hear me not slashing with a sword I care about your soul I want you to know Jesus as a brother I want you to know the heavenly father as the heavenly father Recognize the work of his Holy Spirit. Submit yourselves to the master of the house who is true and loving and good and do the will of God. As followers of Jesus, let's live as his true family until our brother comes to get us and take us to the Father. Amen?